We'll begin this morning just by reading two passages. The first one in John 16, verse 8. Jesus is talking here about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And He says this in verse 8, And He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then the second passage, Revelation 12, Revelation 12 and verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. The title of the message this morning is Conviction versus Accusation. And what I'd like to do this morning is to share some thoughts with you on how to distinguish between the convicting work of the Holy Spirit and the accusing work of our adversary, the devil. Or another way to say it, how to discern between the voice of the Lord over against the voice of Satan. Jesus said back there in John 16:8 that one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit is to convict, to convince people of their sin. And much of what it means, even as Christians, to grow in grace is learning to obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives, to do the things that the Spirit tells us to do and to not do the things that the Spirit tells us not to do, to always listen to the Lord when He's dealing with areas of our lives that need change. But what makes this difficult is that at the very same time that the Holy Spirit is working in us and with us for our good, our adversary, the devil, is also working to slander and to accuse for our misery and destruction. And many times what appears to us to be the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is really the accusing work of the devil who is always prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so I want us to think about this this morning, to think about how we can distinguish between the voice of the Lord and the accusing voice of the enemy. And I'm, I'm convinced of this, based on my own experience and based on the experience of other Christians that I talk to, that we, that we as Christians put up with a lot more than we should in this area. We allow Satan to put us under this dark cloud of fear and worry and unbelief and joylessness, and then we allow ourselves to stay there because we're convinced that this is something that God really desires for us and that He doesn't have anything better for us than that. Or worse, we think that this dark cloud is really the work of the Holy Spirit and that we just have to bear up under it because God is somehow you know, punishing us for some wrong that we did or something. But what does Paul say in Romans 8.15? He says, You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. It's not slavery and fear that we have as Christians, but it's a spirit of intimate, joyous cries of Abba, Father. And this is what the Holy Spirit leads the Christian into. Again, 2 Corinthians 3.17, Paul says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty, not bondage, not fear, not joylessness, liberty. Galatians 5.1, Paul tells the Galatians, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. 
And Jesus didn't say that he came to bring misery and defeat, but abundant life. I came that you might have life and life more abundant. He said he came that his joy would be in us and that our joy would be made full. And so you see, this is the life of God in the soul of man. This is what Christ came to give us, and that is what the Holy Spirit desires to work in us. But like Paul told those Galatians, we have to keep standing firm and not to allow ourselves to be subject again to a yoke of slavery. See, there's a responsibility on our part to keep standing firm and to not allow ourselves to be subject again to this yoke of fear and bondage. And a big part of doing that is learning to discern the voice of the Lord from the competing voices of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so that's my prayer this morning, that we would see even just a little bit more clearly how we can do this in our daily walk with the Lord. And before we go any further, I do want to say something briefly here to those who are not Christians this morning, because you might be sitting there thinking that this message really doesn't pertain to you at all, because after all, you're not a believer, and so you don't have to worry about discerning between the voice of the Lord and the voice of the devil. You think you're on the outside of this fight and that the fight really doesn't have anything to do with you. But that's a lie. Uh, It's not the idea that you have Christians and the devil kind of fighting it off over here and then you're over here on the other side just watching. No, you are in the fight as well. That's what the Bible teaches. You're not just a neutral observer of both sides, but you are actually fighting on the side of the devil himself. The Bible says that you are held captive by Him to do His will. 2 Timothy 2. Jesus said that you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. You like to think that you're your own person. You like to think that you can just do your own thing. No one's going to tell you what to do. No one's going to tell you what to believe. And that is exactly what the devil wants you to think. He's more than happy to allow you to think that you're your own person doing your own thing as long as he's still the one holding the leash. That's all that matters at the end of the day. He'll let you think you're doing your own thing while you are really, as Paul says, walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So I say this message is for you as well this morning. If you're here, you're not a Christian, this message is for you. And I pray that the Lord would open your eyes this morning, that he would not allow the devil to snatch the word out of your heart, but that you would stop and listen. Stop listening to the devil and start listening to the one who said that my very words are spirit and they are life. Listen to him this morning, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, before we get into specifics about how we can discern between these things, what I want us to do is look at four general statements or general principles uh, when it comes to kind of leading into this topic. And these are things that I hope will kind of help direct us into understanding this a little bit better. So just beginning with four general statements here, four general principles to help guide us this morning. First of all, the God of the Bible is a communicating God. Now, this is an obvious truth, but in Psalm 115, the psalmist brings out that this is one of the things that distinguishes the true God from all false gods and false idols. It says there in Psalm 115 that these idols have mouths, but they cannot speak. So he's contrasting the true God with these false idols. These idols have mouths. You you can draw a mouth on a chunk of wood, but that chunk of wood is not going to speak. But the God of the Bible speaks. He's a communicating God. 
Jeremiah 10.5 says that these idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field because they cannot speak. And all throughout the Bible, we see God communicating with his creation. At the very beginning, he's walking there with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day, speaking with them. And at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation, you have the Holy Spirit saying, come, inviting sinners to come in and to partake of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all throughout the history of the nation of Israel, really, you could say the history of Israel is a history of God communicating with his people. He'd raise up prophets, raise up spokespeople to communicate, And all of that culminates, of course, in God himself coming into the world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says this in Hebrews 1. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has what? Spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And the fact that we are even here this morning is a testimony to the fact that God is a communicating God. If that were not so, there'd be no Bible to even learn from. If that were not so, there'd be no Christians here to listen to the Bible. The only reason you're a Christian this morning, if you are a Christian, is because God spoke to you and he opened your ears to hear his voice. And as a result, you came to Christ. So the first general principle then is that the God of the Bible is a communicating God. Secondly... God is not the only one communicating with us. And that's the problem, isn't it? God is a communicating God, but he's not the only one communicating with us. The world, the flesh, and the devil are communicating as well. And and this is something that each of us experiences. I mean, you don't even have to have the Bible to tell you this because you experience it firsthand every day. You're bombarded with lies, perversions of the media, the world system, bombarded with the foolishness of men. And in addition to those things, we have the wandering thoughts of our unredeemed mortal body that the Bible calls the flesh to contend with. Peter calls these the fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, 1 Peter 2.11. And so because of that, Paul exhorts us in 2 Corinthians 10 to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So you have to do that because there's these thoughts out here that are communicating to you, and you've got to go and take them captive. But here's the thing, it's not just the world and the flesh that we have to worry about, it's also the devil, who is always seeking for an opportunity to communicate lies and deception in an attempt to cast doubt upon God and to destroy our faith. And at the very beginning, we see him doing this in the garden, disguised as the serpent. What does he say to Eve? Did God really say? Did God really say? And that's his constant mantra from the very beginning all the way down to the present day, The devil is always telling people or asking people, did God really say, is that what God really said? And that's the same tactic he uses on us today. You remember there in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul was afraid for these Corinthians. Why? He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So he was afraid for them because the devil is speaking lies to them. And this is a danger that is always real for us as well. We tend to think that the communications of the devil are something that are obvious and something that we're always going to know are there when it comes. But Paul himself warned against that. He said Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, and he's much more crafty than we tend to assume. 
So, first of all, God of the Bible is a communicating God. Secondly, not only does God communicate with us, but also the world, the flesh, and the devil communicate with us. And so, where does that leave us then? Are we just stuck here kind of in this middle of confusion, voices coming at us from every side and unable to discern between the voice of the Lord and the voice of our enemies? No, and that leads to number three, the third general statement here. Thirdly, God is able to effectually communicate with his people. He's able to effectually communicate with his people. And now, beloved, we have to hold on to this this morning. In other words, God is able to get through to you in such a way that you know it's him. He's able to get through to you in such a way that you know it's him. That's what I mean by effectual. You know it's him speaking. I'm sure many of you have heard that message from Brother Merle where he's talking there about God calling Abraham. And, and I, this is so good. Conrad asked the question, how did Abraham know that it was God calling him and not the devil? How did Abraham know? This, this voice comes and, Abraham, I want you to go here. Well, how did Abraham know that was God and not the devil? What's Conrad's answer? Because it was God. That's how he knew. <laughs> and at first you're like, what? But the more you think about it, it's a pretty good answer. What is he saying? He's saying that God can speak to people in such a way that they know it's God. That's all he's saying. God can speak to you in such a way that you know it's Him. In John 10, Jesus is talking about Himself being the good shepherd of His sheep, His people. Let's turn to this, John chapter 10. If you're looking for kind of a New Testament parallel to the case of Abraham, here's where it's found. John 10. Jesus is talking to these Pharisees. He's talking about Himself being the good shepherd. And He says this, starting there in verse 2, But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens. And listen, the sheep do what? Hear his voice. That's what Jesus said. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. You see, he's talking about something effectual here. The sheep hear his voice. They know it's him. They know it's the shepherd. They know the voice of the true shepherd, and they follow him. Now jump down to verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice. They will hear my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. Now, you might stop there and ask, well, how can Jesus know for sure? How can he know for sure that these lost sheep who are out there really will hear and respond to his voice. And the answer is that Jesus is able to speak to people in such a way that they know that it's him speaking. That's the point. They know it's him speaking. And that's how Jesus can know for sure that these lost sheep will hear his voice and will come. And he goes on, verse 26, talking to these Pharisees. He says, You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. So, God is able to effectually communicate with us in such a way that we know that it's Him speaking. That's the point here. He's able to speak to us in such a way that we know that it's Him speaking. Point number four. 
And here's where it gets hard. Even though God is able to speak effectually to his people, he doesn't always do that. Even though he's able to speak effectually to his people, he doesn't always do that. And I want us to think about this here for a minute. Why does he do this? Why does he leave us to seemingly grope around all the time in the darkness and in confusion? You know, you're thinking about maybe moving to a new area, but you're just not sure if it's the Lord's will for you, and so you seek the Lord about it, and you just you don't know. Why doesn't he just tell you? He can do that. He can speak to you effectually and tell you why doesn't he do it. And you could apply this in so many areas. I mean, you could apply it to getting a new job. You can apply it to buying a new car or a house. You could apply it to a marriage partner. Why doesn't God just speak effectually to us and just tell us? You know, he can do that. Why doesn't he? So what do you guys think about that? Why doesn't he? All right, who said that? All right, excellent. And I think that's probably the number one reason why God doesn't do that. I mean, this and this is so wonderful. Probably the main reason why he doesn't do this is in order to keep us dependent upon him. To keep us dependent upon him. We just sang that song this morning that said, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And one of the ways the Lord guards us against that tendency for us to always wander away from him is to force us to seek him for guidance, for wisdom, for help in making decisions, to force us to seek him. And I'm using force kind of lightly there, but, I mean, it's a blessed force. He forces you to have to draw near to him and seek him. How thankful we should be that the Lord doesn't always speak to us in a perfectly clear, perfectly effectual voice, but he encourages us to seek him for wisdom and for guidance, forces us to stay close to him. Because that's where, we, that's where we need to be. That's the most safe place to be is right next to Him. And if we're always wandering off all the time, you see, we're outside of that place where we should be. And so He forces us to seek Him. But there's another reason, and I think the other reason, I think that's definitely the main reason, but secondly, why doesn't God always speak effectually to us? I think we have to realize, and we lose, we lose this so much, We have to realize that when God saves us, that he really does enter into a real relationship with us. That this thing of salvation is not just some kind of money transaction. You know, you put your coin in the slot and pull the lever and you get eternal life. We're talking about a relationship here. This is something that God enters into you with a real relationship. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they might know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, we're talking about a relationship. And so how does this fit in? Well, a major part of what it means to be in a relationship with someone is learning how to communicate with them. It's learning to hear their voice, learning to discern their voice. And any married couple can attest to this. I mean, I've been married now. My wife and I are going to have our eighth anniversary tomorrow, eight years. And I can tell you right now that there are things that I know about my wife's voice that I didn't know right after we were married. There's certain inflections, you know, there's certain, (laughs) it's like you hear this little, you hear this tone in there and you know you're in trouble. (laughs) And see, that's not something you heard right away. It's not something you understood right away. And another eight years will go by and I'll know her voice even better, you see. We all know what that's like. And it's the exact same thing with God. Learning to discern the Lord's voice is part of our preparation 
for an eternity with Him. And we don't think about this enough, but beloved, what we experience here in this life really does matter in terms of our walk with the Lord. The things that we learn in our walk with Him are not just valuable to us right now, but they're actually preparing us for eternity. Paul says in Romans 9 that we are being prepared beforehand for glory. We rejoice right now in salvation. We rejoice right now in hope of the glory of God. But it's also something we're in the process of being prepared for. And learning to discern the voice of the Lord is part of that preparation process for an eternity together with Him. Okay, so with the rest of our time then this morning, what I want us to do is to consider several different things that distinguish this convicting work of the Lord versus the accusing work of our adversary, the devil. Now, these are general principles, and I stress this now and I'll stress it at the end. These are general type principles that have to be applied in specific situations, and that's our problem most of the time, is we sit here, we hear a message, and we hear these things that are good and helpful, but we don't go home and apply them. You have to apply them. We can't be like that person that James talked about that goes and looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what they look like. We have to be people who both hear the Word and do the Word, apply it. We have to apply these things in order for them to truly help us. And so if learning to discern the voice of the Lord is part of what it means to be prepared for eternity, how can we learn better to do that, to discern His voice? And I want to mention here that the original idea for this whole message came from an article that I read from another pastor named Ray Ortland. Uh, and so I did want to mention that, that there were some ideas of his that I incorporated into the message here this morning. And I think, I think I have five or six of these, and I don't know if we'll get through them all or not. We'll try. But so here we have a few different ways to distinguish the convicting work of the Lord versus the accusing work of the slanderer. Number one, Satan desires to keep us away from other Christians while the Lord wants to bring us closer to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Satan desires to separate us from other Christians while the Lord wants to bring us closer together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Proverbs 16:28. A perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. And that's always, always been one of the chief tactics of the devil, to sow discord among the brethren and to attempt to separate intimate friends. You'll remember there in the Gospels, there's an occasion when the disciples were walking along, and it, it literally says this. It's easy to miss this, but literally it says that an argument entered in among them as to which of them might be the greatest. You remember that, that time when they're arguing about who's the greatest? Well, that argument didn't just come from nowhere. It specifically uses that language in, in the passage in Luke. It says an argument entered in as to which of them might be the greatest. In other words, here's an example of the devil entering in and trying to sow up discord and strife. And it's amazing because as soon as Jesus meets up with them, the first thing Jesus says, it says, Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. And he gives them that teaching about, you know, the, the greatest will be least. And it's like Jesus just nips that thing in the bud right away. But if he hadn't done that, who knows what would have happened? Who knows the kind of catastrophe that thing might have been with the disciples arguing with one another. And so the devil there is entering in trying to sow discord. And the point here that, that is that we need to, to constantly be on the lookout for thoughts and attitudes and wrong thinking that seeks to drive a wedge between us and other members of the body. And I think this comes up a lot, particularly when we're struggling with something that we know 
we should talk to somebody about. You're struggling with an issue and you know that you need to go talk to somebody about this. And the thought comes in, don't call that person. Don't talk to that person. You, you know they don't have time for you. Or you know that they don't really want to listen to you complain all day about your problems. Or they'll, you know, the devil will say something like, you're going to go talk to them about that? You're going to go tell them you struggle with that? What are they going to think about you? And all of those things are attempts of the devil to divide brother and sister from brother and sister and to keep us, and here's the the thing, to keep us from getting any real help. What does James 5 say? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to come up in front of everybody here and confess your sins in front of the whole church. Sometimes it means that. But at least you need to get together with with another brother and sister and get real with them about your problems. In many cases, God will not give you any help until you do that, until you go and talk to somebody else about your problems. Because what's the reason why you're not going to talk to them? It's because you want to save face. You know, and you want to save your pride. And as long as you're holding on to that, God's not going to give you any help, you see. He's going to force you to have to go to somebody else and confess your need to break your pride. And it's then, many times, that the help comes, after you go to somebody else and confess to them your need. And not only that, but it brings you closer together with your brothers and sisters. You learn, what does Paul say? Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Well, you can't bear a burden from, of someone if you don't know what the burden is. And so part of what it means to grow closer together as a body is being real with one another and sharing needs, being able to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So that's the first one. Number two, the accusations of Satan drive us away from the Lord, while true conviction drives us to the Lord. Here again, let's say you're struggling with something and you know that you should go before God and talk to Him about it. You know you need to go and get before Him and pour your heart out to Him. And the devil comes in and says, you hypocrite. You can't go talk to God like that, you dirty piece of meat. You can't go into His presence that way. What is He going to think of you? What's God going to think of you if you go and talk to Him right now? Or the devil will say that God is tired of hearing you pray about the same thing over and over again. God's tired of hearing you pray about the same thing over and over again. Don't you have this thing figured out yet? How can you still be struggling with this same thing? Has the devil ever told you that? God's tired of you coming about that same thing, that same issue. Get over it. You see, it's driving you away from the Lord, keeping you away from Him. But true Holy Spirit conviction, when when God deals with you, He never pushes you away, but He directs you to Himself as the only one who can give you any help. James says, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. It's a promise. He will. Hebrews 4.16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy, excuse me, and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 10, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, you don't, not drawing near in a groveling type of way. Draw near with confidence. Draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, full assurance of faith. You see, the emphasis is always draw near to God. The way for you is open. Draw near. Draw near. Come on in. Draw near. That's the emphasis. 
And what you'll find, and this is so wonderful, what you'll find is that if you just start heading to him, just take a few steps towards him, that's all you have to do. And what you'll find is that he'll run out, just like this, that father of the prodigal son. He'll run out and he'll meet you on the way. He'll, he'll throw his arms around you. He'll kiss you. He'll clothe you. He'll take you home and throw a party for you. All you've got to do is just start heading in that direction. Just start heading home and he'll meet you. It's not about cleaning up your act and then going. I mean, I I imagine that prodigal son smelled pretty bad by the time he got home. But see, it's not about cleaning yourself up. You're going home to be cleaned up. That's the point. Just as I am, without one plea. That's, That's all you can say. But God accepts you that way. Now, what about this thing of God God being tired of hearing you pray about the same thing over and over again? Did Jesus ever say anything that dealt with that accusation? Of course he did. Sermon on the Mount. What's Jesus say? Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Specifically dealing with that accusation. So the next time that you're feeling that temptation, quote that right back at the devil. Quote that promise. No, Jesus said that I need to come to seek, to ask, to knock over and over and over again. Lord, here I am again. And you know what the problem is, but here I am again. I have nowhere else to go. And you, you told me to come. Christ encourages us to come and to keep on coming to the throne of grace as often as we need to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Okay, number three. And to me, this is probably one of the biggest ones that I'll mention here this morning. Number three. Satan will bring a general sense of depression and confusion while the Lord will put his finger on a specific sin that he wants you to deal with. Let me, let me say that again. Satan will bring a general sense of depression and confusion while the Lord will put his finger on a specific sin that he wants you to deal with. And this is one that I have seen over and over again in my own life and in other people that I talk to. And what happens is you have this sense of darkness, this sense of depression, this sense of joylessness. And as far as you know... There's no unconfessed sin in your life. As far as you know, there's no area of disobedience in your life that you're walking in. As far as you know, you're right with the Lord in terms of everything that should be right with Him. And yet you cannot shake this sense of depression and failure. And it's, it's here where a lot of Christians will stay because they assume that this sense of darkness is God disciplining them for something or it's just something they're going to have to put up with because God doesn't have anything better for them. But you see, the Lord doesn't deal with His children this way. The Lord does not deal with His children like that. I mean, you as parents, you wouldn't deal with your children that way. You wouldn't go around all day long letting your children think you were mad at them without telling them specifically what they did wrong. You wouldn't do that. Why would you think God would do that with you? You see, if you being evil wouldn't treat your own children that way, how much less would God treat His children that way? No, when God deals with us, He deals with us in specifics. He'll put His finger on a specific area of our lives that He wants us to change. It's not just some kind of general cloudy, depression, joyless kind of feeling. It's a specific thing. No, here's something you need to change. Right here. Specific. And all throughout, His goal is not to crush us, but to bring us more and more into the true liberty of the children of God. He doesn't break the bruised reed. 
he doesn't snuff out the smoldering flax. That's not what he does. He builds up and strengthens us to walk with him. Yes, God will force us to deal with our sin, but he doesn't rub our face in it, and he doesn't bring it up in order to crush us. He wants, us to, he wants to deliver us from it. That's the point. And so if you're going through a, a time of darkness, joylessness, a heavy sense of failure, but you don't know why, because you're, you're not entertaining any sin, you're not walking in an area of disobedience as far as you're aware, then here's my counsel for you. I would go back to two things that we talked about earlier this morning. And if you could just get a hold of this, this will help you. First of all, you go back to the idea that God desires for you to have abundant life and joy in your Christian life. That's what God desires. That's what he said. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and life more abundant. He said, I came that my joy would be in you and that your joy would be full. That's his desire for you. And you have to constantly, constantly be coming back to that reality. This is what God said he desires for me. Don't settle for anything less than that. That's what he desires. And anything less is less than what God has for you. So first thing, that's what you go back to. You go back to that principle. But secondly, you go back to what we said earlier about the fact that God is able to speak to you in such a way that you know that it's him speaking and that you know what he is speaking to you about. And so you go back to him with those two things in mind. You go to the Lord with those two things in mind, that he desires better for you and that he's able to effectually speak to you about something that's wrong in your life. And here's, here's just a prayer that I wrote out um, more for my own benefit than anything. But I can, I can see someone going before the Lord with this in mind and saying something like this. Lord, I'm feeling miserable and depressed and joyless right now, and this is nothing like the abundant life that Jesus said he came to give me. I've thought for a long time that this joylessness was a result of you dealing with me about some sin, but Lord, as far as I know, there is no unconfessed sin in my life, and I'm not currently walking in any disobedience to you. So starting right now, I'm going to treat this depression like an attack of the enemy until you tell me otherwise. I know that you are able to speak effectually to me so that if there is some sin in my life, you're able to speak to me directly and clearly about it, and I trust you to do that. So I renounce this darkness as a tool of the devil, and by your grace, I'm going to get up and attempt to walk in the liberty and joy purchased for me by Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what you do. You get up and you walk. And you get up and you, you live in the reality of this thing, that Christ purchased for you something better than this cloud of misery and darkness. And if the darkness returns, you renounce it again. And if it returns again, you renounce it again and again as long as it takes. You see, it doesn't matter. Until God puts his finger on something specific, until God tells you, here's what it is I want you to change, then you don't have to put up with this, you see. You get up and you walk with the Lord. And you renounce this darkness for what it is, a tool of the devil. And I like the way Mason said it to me one time. He said, you stop trusting in your ability to hear God and you start trusting in his ability to speak to you. That's pretty good. You stop trusting in your ability to hear God and start trusting in his ability to speak to you clearly, definitively, specifically. And you walk with him. Number four. Satan gives despair without hope, while the Lord will always give hope in his dealings with us. Satan gives despair without hope. There's no hope in his counsel. 
Well, the Lord always gives hope in his dealings with us. And when you look back at the Old Testament and you see the nation of Israel just sinking deeper and deeper into sin, deeper and deeper into idolatry, I mean, you kind of expect the Lord to just cast them off. I mean, just get rid of them. But over and over again, he sends prophets to call them back, repent, return to me, repent, return to me, repent, return to me, over and over again. He sends, he sends a message of hope to the people. And even in a book like Amos, I mean, you read the book of Amos, it's not, you know, a real light thing to, you know, so I'm just going to, you know, pick up and read the book of Amos right now. I mean, it's, it's over and over again, God is just pronouncing judgment on nation after nation. But even in Amos, at the very end, he still gives a nugget of hope. Even in a book like that, that's full of basically nothing but judgment, God still leaves them with a nugget of hope. Now, how does this relate to us? The point here is that God never deals with us in such a way as to leave us without hope. Yes, he'll speak to us about our sin. He'll speak to us about things we need to change. But he'll always end by giving us hope and encouragement and telling us where we can go to find help, directing us to himself. And that's something that's always true of Holy Spirit conviction. The Holy Spirit doesn't leave a person just in despair. But the Holy Spirit will tell a person what to change and direct them to the Lord as the one who can help them to change. On the other hand, the devil simply wants to crush people. He always counsels despair without hope. He's out to steal, to kill, and to destroy, and he doesn't want people to get help, and so he'll never point somebody to the Lord, never tell a person where they can go to get help, just simply mocks them for their failures and leaves them in despair. And I want to look at an illustration of this. I guess we can turn back to this. Job 4. Eliphaz is speaking here. And starting in verse 12, he begins to recount this experience that he had in the night. And so starting in verse 12, it says, Now a word was brought to me stealthily, and my ear received a whisper of it. Amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling and made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed by my face. I mean, it's obvious here from the context that this was some kind of demonic thing. He's trembling, there's fear. Dread falls upon him. And he says, This spirit passed by my face. The hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. And so here's the picture. There's this demonic spirit there. And now Eliphaz is going to relate to us what this demonic spirit said to him. Here it is. Verse 17. Can mankind be just? Before God? Can a man be pure before his Maker? He puts no trust even in his servants, and against his angels he charges error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth? Between morning and evening they are broken in pieces, unobserved they perish forever. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? They die, yet without wisdom. And that's the message of this evil spirit. Uh, notice there that there's not one bit of hope. It's just man is so sinful, can man ever be in the right before God? And the answer is implicitly no. 
There's no way that man could ever be right with God. Man's situation is hopeless. He's sinful, and there's no way that he can ever be in the right before God, period. It's just all despair, doom and gloom, no hope whatsoever. Now contrast that with the way the Lord deals with His people. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 1 for an illustration of this. Isaiah chapter 1. And according to verse 1 here, uh, Isaiah is speaking, the Lord is speaking through Isaiah to the nations of um, Judah and Jerusalem. So he's speaking to Israel here. And the Lord just lays into them. I mean, there's some pretty serious stuff here. God just lays into them. Starting in verse 2, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons have I reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Skip down to verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. I mean, he's calling the nation of Israel rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this of you, this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. And it's just like, you know, I mean, you stop right there. And again, there's no hope. And you think, well, it's the same message that that evil spirit gave back in Job 4, right? But you have to keep on reading. Go down to verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So you see here, then ultimately, when you look at the whole thing, the messages are completely different from one another. The Lord always gives hope and encouragement in the midst of rebuke and in the midst of dealing with, dealing with people about their sin. Come, let us reason together. You know, even after he blasts them, just up and down blasts them, yet, come, let us reason together. It doesn't have to be this way. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as wool, and so on. He says some pretty hard things, but he doesn't leave it there. Gives hope and encouragement and directs people to himself. And even when God disciplines us, he doesn't do it to cause us to despair, but so that we might draw even nearer to him and know his pleasure in a way we didn't before. Hebrews says he disciplines us for our good, that we might be partakers of his holiness. So to kind of sum this point up then, the Lord always gives hope in his dealings with us, and he always directs us to himself 
as the one able to meet all of our needs. The accuser just leaves people in despair, crushes them with their sin, and just leaves them there. But God, when he deals with a soul, when the Holy Spirit is convicting a person, doesn't just crush them with their sin, but shows them Christ and gives them hope and encouragement to seek the Lord to get their sin taken care of. Okay, two more. Number five, the devil directs us to ourselves and emphasizes self-focus while the Lord directs us away from ourselves to Christ and His power. The devil directs us inward to ourselves and emphasizes self-focus while the Lord directs us away from ourselves and points us to Christ and His power. The accuser wants us to keep our eyes fixed on ourselves because he knows that as long as your eyes are fixed on yourself, you're not going to get any help whatsoever in the Christian life. That's the bottom line. You remember those fiery serpents that plagued the people in Numbers 21, and Moses makes that bronze serpent, and he tells the people, all you have to do is look away from yourself, look to that serpent, and you'll live. And see, the devil does not want that. The devil wants you to sit there and just to kind of look at your snake bites all day long. That's all he wants you to do. You know, well, man, you've got a bad one right there. Oh, look at that one over there. You better cover that thing up so people can't see it. I mean, that's, the devil just wants to keep you occupied with your snake bites all day long looking at the bites on your arms. Everything is focused here on myself and my problems and my faults. But when God is dealing with you, He doesn't simply have you looking at yourself. He doesn't leave you looking at yourself. You do. He does show you yourself, and you see it plenty about yourself. But then He directs your gaze away from yourself to the One who took care of all of those snake bites already for you. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you were healed. You see, Jesus was bit by that snake on the cross and so that we wouldn't have to deal with those snake bites ourselves. But you've got to look, you see. You've got to get your eyes off of your snake bites and look to Him. That's the point. But not only does the enemy want us focused on ourselves when it comes to our sins and weaknesses and failures, he also wants us focused on ourselves with regards to the strength and the power that we need to walk with God day by day. And here's what I mean. Jesus flat out tells us in John 15, he just flat out says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. And see, we don't believe that. We don't really believe that Jesus said that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The problem is that we don't believe it. And so what do we do? We look inward for strength, and we try to work something up inside in order to get us through the day. And of course, the accuser is glad to help you out with that. He'll, he'll, he'll help you out all day long, as long as you're going to be looking inside and trying to work up power in and of yourself. But here again, the Lord comes and He directs us away from ourselves to the supply and strength and power that's found in Him alone. And you see this in 2 Corinthians 12. Let's go ahead and turn there. This is such a good passage to be reminded of. 2 Corinthians 12. Starting in verse 7 here, Paul's talking about this thorn in the flesh, whatever this thing was, some kind of physical ailment that Paul suffered from, but it was a demonically caused ailment. 
verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to beat me, literally. A messenger of Satan to beat me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. So three times... Paul begs the Lord to take this thing away. Whatever it was, whatever this thorn in the flesh was, three times Paul begs for the Lord to take it away. But look what happens. Verse 9, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So what does the Lord do? He takes Paul's eyes off of the thorn itself, takes, the, takes his eyes off of himself, And puts his eyes on him. He says, Paul, look, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. He directs Paul away from himself and directs him to to Christ, to the one who has the power and the grace to get Paul through this. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. In other words, he says, Paul, you're going to have to deal with this thing, but you're not going to have to deal with it in your own strength. That's the message. You'll have to deal with it, but not in your own strength, but through the strength and power of Christ. And so look at Paul's response then. Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak... Then I am strong. See, Paul got the lesson. Look away from yourself. Look away from the thorn and look to Christ. Look to the one whose grace is sufficient for you and whose power is perfected in weakness. And so Jesus says, John 15, Part from me you can do nothing. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see that there? You can, apart from me you can do nothing. Paul says, you're right. But with you I can do all things. And that's our mindset. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And so the devil directs us to ourselves, emphasizes self-focus, while the Lord directs us away from ourselves to Christ and the sufficiency of His power. And that's always true when the Holy Spirit, when it's really the Holy Spirit dealing with somebody, directs them away from themselves and to the one who can give them help. Lastly then, number six. The accuser will continue to bring up sin that has already been confessed and dealt with while the Lord forgives and forgets. This is another biggie. Our enemy tends to be stuck in the past. You talk about people being, that person's stuck in the, they're stuck in the 60s or whatever. Well, our, our enemy is he's stuck in the past. He's always reaching backwards behind us to try to dredge up some sin that's already been dealt with, you see. You know, it's like those old detective movies. You know, where were you on the night of October 21st, 1986? And the guy's like, oh, I don't know. And, but it's, it's like that's what Satan is doing all the time. Where were you on this day? Where were you on this day? Dredging up something from our past, you know, hold up before us to accuse us with. But one of the blessings specifically brought about by the new covenant is this. God tells, tells his people, he says, their sins and their iniquities, I will remember no more. I will remember no more. 
He doesn't wink at them. He doesn't sweep them under the rug. But he remembers them no more because they really were dealt with once and for all at the cross of Christ. They were paid for in full. Not just swept under the rug and kind of pretend they don't exist, but really paid for in full. And therefore Micah says, Micah 7.19, that you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. It's not the idea that God somehow pretends that our sins don't exist. He knows full well they exist. But the thing is, is that he's dealt with them, he's paid for them, and they don't need to be brought up again, you see. He refuses to take them into account because they've already been taken care of by Christ. They've already been dealt with. They're behind us now. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13.5 that true love does not take into account a wrong suffered. True love does, I think maybe in the King James, it keeps no record of wrongs. Is that right? I think that's what it says. Some other translation has that. It keeps no record of wrongs. But beloved, if God demands that we love others this way, surely His love is even greater than our human love, and He loves us the same way. He doesn't keep record of wrongs. And you know what it's like. I mean, you can't have a real relationship with someone if that person is constantly bringing up things that you did wrong in the past. I mean, it's impossible to have a real relationship with someone like that. I mean, they're always bringing up things that you did years ago. You know, oh, yeah, but you remember that? And then a few days later, yeah, I remember when you did that way back then? I mean, you can't, you can't live with that. But God himself doesn't demand that we love any differently than he himself loves us. And if we are not to take into account a wrong suffered, then you can be sure that the Lord deals with us in the same way. Again, it's one of those things where if we being evil can get past this thing, then surely God in his infinite love can get past this thing. Not taking into account a wrong suffered. Whereas the accuser is always wanting to reach into the past, our Heavenly Father is content to leave the past in the past. And His mercies are new every morning. Every morning. Paul says in Philippians 3, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. You've got to forget. I mean, God's forgotten about that stuff. You need to forget about it. Move on. So when the devil comes around and he's dredging up these things from your past and he's holding these things out before you, what do you do? And I like the way Conrad Merle said it. He said, you plead guilty and plead the blood. That's all you can do. Plead guilty, plead the blood. It's like, yes, Satan, I know. I know that I did that. We've been through this before. I sinned. I messed up. But the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses me from all sin. And you move on. And the accuser has been silenced. There's nothing else he can say, you see. You plead guilty and plead the blood. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. All right, well, that's all I had uh, this morning. And as I said before, I want to emphasize this again at the end. These things, I think, are helpful. They've been helpful to me, but they have to be applied in your daily life. It's not. I mean, you can't just let these things wash over you and expect them to just have some kind of magical power to keep you from these accusations throughout the week. It's not going to happen. You've got to take these truths. You've got to apply them in the situations that they need to be applied in. When these things start coming up and you're starting to, to wonder, you know, I'm feeling this way. Is it the Holy Spirit? I don't know. How can I know? Here are some tests that you can use to try to discern that. But they have to be applied. Okay, I think we'll stop there then. And what I want to do is I want to open it up um, to you all. I'm hoping that 
that some some people have some things to share. I mean, a lot of you have been Christians a lot longer than I have, and so you've had to deal with the enemy a lot longer than I've had to deal with him. Uh, and so I'm hoping that maybe some of you will have some things to add that would be helpful for the rest of us to hear. But not just older Christians, but everybody. Anybody who would have something to share, now's the time.